Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for March 14th, 2018. On today's show, we will dive into the Star Wars Last Jedi special features on the home video release at the water cooler. And in our feature presentation, we will consider if all the studios should adopt inclusion riders. Uh, this is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Okay, guys, uh, we have both seen uh, at least the, the documentary on the Star Wars Last Jedi, which is now out, I think, just on VOD. It comes out on physical media in, in two weeks or so. Um, I have no idea why studios do that. Do you, do, do you have any idea, Brad? Yeah, um, uh, I think we've talked about this before or something like that, but there's um, studios are kind of making the push now to get people to start buying more digital copies instead of physical copies. And so having the digital copy available first before Blu-ray and DVD convinces more people to buy it sooner because that's when it's available as opposed to waiting to have to buy on Blu-ray and DVD. Now, I don't buy physical physical copies of movies. My entire library now is is in the cloud virtually, but I know you have a huge collection and you bought this digitally, so apparently it worked. I actually didn't buy this digitally. Uh, uh-huh. My 
my friend bought it digitally, and we share iTunes accounts. Oh, okay. Well, then it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, but on this uh, on this home video release, uh, there's a lot of special features, which I'll talk about some of the other ones uh, later. But uh, I want to talk about this documentary. There's a feature length documentary called "The Director in the Jedi." It's uh, what like an hour and forty five minutes or something like that. Hour um, thirty five minutes, yeah. Th- thirty five minutes. Um, uh, I guess you know to talk about this in any depth, you know, we we have to uh, say that we're going to be discussing spoilers for a documentary on the making of a movie. Well, I mean, at the very least, we're definitely talking about spoilers for the Last Jedi, and then like we're giving this a spoiler warning simply because uh, Peter and I had to talk about this on our Slack. I think that with a documentary. The most interesting thing about it and like the things that are quote unquote spoiled are if you like reveal things that are discussed in the documentary or shown things that you might not expect and are interesting to see for the first time, you know, in uh, unfolding as they were captured, you know, on camera on set. So, see, like, in my mind, I'm of a totally different mind. I'm, I'm in the mind of of we know how this movie turns out. We know the decisions that the directors and the filmmakers and the actors make. Uh, so, you know, saying... I think, I think there's a lot say, of cool Saying something, I think it's more about... The documentary is more about seeing how it happened. Like right. seeing... Yeah. I, mean, uh, yeah. I yeah. agree with you, but I also think that there's just... There's some things that we didn't know about the production and that are interesting to see in your, where, like, when, you, when you're watching it and it's a new piece of information to you, you're like oh wow that's that's really interesting and like i don't know i just feel like it makes the experience that much more much more engaging yeah um okay let's just start off firstly with uh what did you think of this documentary uh i loved it it was even better than i thought it was going to be uh i know you um have some qualms with the uh the force awakens feature length documentary that was included when that came out on home video um, and I still really enjoyed it just because I, I love any glimpse behind the scenes of making a movie. But that um, well, I just want to say that, that the problem with the Force Awakens documentary is I have two problems. First of all, the documentary opens up with all the actors basically being like, what can we talk to you about? Like, I'm not sure, like, what we're allowed to say. And it feels like that the entire documentary it feels like a studio created featurette that, like, was made inside the mystery box without getting complete access to the mystery box. Yeah, like, it doesn't. Fair. It doesn't feel like they even, you know, go in depth and detail about some of the more spoilery things about that movie because i'm guessing the documentary filmmakers weren't even given access to those like scenes and those you know parts but um anyways go on sorry yeah well so on on kind of on the opposite of the spectrum is this is a documentary that uh you know assumes you've seen the movie doesn't try to hide anything is a very in-depth and extensive look behind the scenes with uh showing all the um behind the scenes production blemishes and all I think what I what I like most about this is it shows the the sheer difficulty of taking on a project of this scale and how uh, nervous and stressed you know Ryan Johnson was at times you know um, some of the honest and candid conversations he has with Ron Bergman who's the producer of this movie are really just are they're they're intimate and they're they're fascinating and uh, there's moments with Ryan Johnson and Mark Hamill you know where they're talking about the character path of Luke Skywalker and Mark Hamill saying a lot of what we've heard him say already in the publicity rounds of how he wasn't necessarily happy with the arc that uh, Ryan took Luke on. And you really, 
uh, kind of see how almost like sad and in a way a little bit dejected Hamill is in this. Like he really seems like he's having a hard time uh, processing this version of Luke, but ultimately comes around to it. And there, I think my um, my favorite moment in this documentary actually is when towards the end of it, Ryan Johnson comes and he has like this little private moment with Luke after they've shot uh, a scene and he tells him the title of the movie. And it's, it's at a point when only like a couple people know what the title is. And so he tells him, he's like, it's the last Jedi. And Mark Hamill's like, Oh, he's like, yeah. like, that's me. And he was like, he was like, yeah. And he's like, and so it's like, it's almost <laughs> like a, Oh man. Like, like, like not that, not that he fully accepts it or like has this whole new understanding, but like, I think yeah. that helped him feel better about it. Yeah. Now seeing, um, you know, this movie is, this documentary is called The Director and the Jedi, and it is really, at the center point of that, it is about Mark Hamill's uh, resistance to the this, this story that Ryan Johnson, and w- what Ryan Johnson has done with this character he's played for, you know, decades. And it's it's so compelling and interesting to see uh, Mark Hamill kind of grapple with that. But at the same time, it's not like Mark Hamill, like, it was like, you know, F you, I'm not going to do this movie. Like, he, he still, you know, tried to do everything Ryan wanted him to do in the movie. Do you know what I mean? Like, he still gave it his, his all. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's, there's even one moment uh, when they're shooting that flashback when he's watching the Jedi Temple burn down. And I don't know if he's just so caught up in the character moment or if he's having a, a real moment of, like, sadness himself after that scene. Because like he, oh yeah, they call cut, and he's like still like yeah, he's, bawling he's, on the ground. Yeah, he's like kneeling, and it's like he's he's holding himself up like by one of his fists, and like Ryan Johnson comes over to like talk to him quietly. You don't hear what he says, but like it it seems like he's kind of consoling him and being and like you know probably telling him good job and that kind of thing. But he he's he's down there for like a a good you know thirty seconds or so, kind of still. Uh, processing or, or something along those lines. Yeah, it should be said that, you know, this documentary wasn't made by, like, one of the, like, you know, home video team guys. This was made by Anthony Wonky, I think. Wonk? Wonk? I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. But uh, he's won Emmy Awards. He's won the BAFTA Award for uh, Syria, Children of the Frontline. Uh, he's, you know, done some serious documentary work. And, uh, you know, it shows by this documentary. Like, it feels like he was on set every day. I'm not sure if that's the case. But, um... Uh, you know, just seeing every aspect of this production uh, is is pretty amazing. Uh, I, I think we were, we were talking before about how uh, crazy the secrecy on this production is, which I, I know it seems obvious for it being a Star Wars production. But at like some point, like at one point, Andy Serkis arrives on set for the first time, and Ryan Johnson like pulls him aside. He's like, "I, I just want to tell you now, your character dies," like, and it's just like. Andy Serkis didn't get the script before he arrived on set and wasn't told that his character is going to die. Like, that's crazy. I mean, and... to be fair, do you need a script and know what's going to happen <laughs> with your character before you agree to do a Star Wars movie? No, but you'd think, like, you'd want to see the script before he arrives to, like, prepare or I don't know. Um... Well, actually, well, in that particular sequence, I don't think he arrived to shoot right then. I think that yeah. he was visiting the set. Uh, while they were shooting sure. something else, and but, that's when Ryan okay. There's an there's another moment where like the costume designer is like do, going over the costumes. They like he's talked with Ryan Johnson in depth. Like this isn't the first costume meeting, and he's like 
they're talking about what they're going to do with Benicio del Toro's character, and he's like, well, he's the villain in the movie, so blah blah blah. And like Ryan Johnson's like, no, 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 he's not the villain. Don't don't listen to the internet. Yeah, and I'm just like, wait, the the costume designer has not read the script. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It it's just kind of insane. Uh oh. Uh, some of the special effects, seeing like seeing um. When Kylo and Rey have their like force time moment and they're like touching each other in the, the hut and Luke comes in and like kind of explodes the hut. All that was done in practically and it, you get yeah. to see it, it amazing. Yeah, that was impressive to see like they had a whole bunch of the stone pieces hooked up to wires that they just yanked away. And it just it looks so cool when they show how how they did it. It's it was, it was awesome. Um, I. I think some of the best moments in this doc have probably been put online. Like, I love Mark Hamill uh, visiting Yoda for the first time while uh, Frank Oz is trying to recreate the magic, you know, with uh, the Yoda puppet. It's just, like, so emotional. Uh, you know, Carrie Fisher's moments on set are uh, probably exaggeratedly emotional just because of, you know, she's she's not here anymore. Um what other moments would you like to talk about in the documentary? Um, let's see. Gosh. Um, oh, seeing the uh, the screen test that John Boyega and Kelly Marie Tran did when she was, um, I, I think, essentially auditioning for Rose still, um, or maybe it was just the first time they were like seeing how they work together on on camera. But that was cool, and that that kind of gives us our explanation as to why there was a, a particular shot in the last Jedi sizzle reel that came out a little while back of John Boyega in a resistance pilot uniform with a different haircut. And it's because they shot that before they were even in production on the movie and they were just, just testing things out. So that, that was really cool to see um, happen as well. And it's like, I just think what's so great about it is this, it's it's a front to back making of documentary, you know, like just all the cool stuff they show from, you know, workshopping the script and rehearsing outside on the Pinewood studios lot with, Mark Hamill and Daisy Ridley, you know, to the, the construction of the sets, uh, all of seeing how in depth the uh, creature creations were was was awesome. You know, um, the creation of the um, the sea cow on yeah. Octu that was that was then that, that yeah, was, I was I was watching this with my girlfriend Kitra and she was like, oh my god, I assumed that 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 whole thing was just CG, like. But it's entirely practical, and they had to like airlift it onto the the what was it onto the island, or was it? No, I think it was the Ireland uh, seaside. No, it was. I I think that I think that was the island actually. Yeah. I think that was the Skelly Michael where they were shooting, and they brought it brought it to like the side uh, where the the ocean was. No, it's just it, it's it's crazy how much work goes into these, and uh, you know, it, this shouldn't be a revelation to anybody. This like should be an obvious fact, but um, you know, for a director that's a writer director that's working on a film for you know what two three years, um, it just it amazes me how much Ryan understands of every little word and moment and why. It, everything matters and explaining moments to Daisy Ridley, explaining moments to Mark Hamill, explaining why something's important. Why it, it just, it amazes me how much of a grasp. And I, I mean, I mean, it, it shouldn't amaze me because I feel like that's what a director needs to know. Do you know what I mean? Like that it, the director needs to understand why each moment is important, but it's just like, Ryan's just so smart. And, uh, 
also watching this documentary, you get to see how how worn out he gets <laughs> over the production by the end of it. Like he feels like uh, he looks like he's getting no sleep. Yeah, I mean, there, there there's like a nice little uh, little collection of moments where they show how tired people are getting as the production is going into the final days. Like Ryan's sleeping in random parts of the set. Like there's one where he's like sleeping on his back uh, on the the Battle of Crate set, or one where he's He's sleeping in the little nook on the Millennium Falcon where uh, Chewbacca gets gets treated in The Force Awakens after he gets shot in the arm. Um, and so, yeah, it's just it, it's funny just to see, you know, how like just the, the level of exhaustion that comes when you have such a big shoot. And they were talking too about uh, they, they shot for like 120 some days it was in total. And they didn't really have like much of a break except for like 10 days for Christmas, I think they said. So they like they go through the calendar and you see just how much work that they've been putting and how long they've been going nonstop on getting that movie done. And that's this is also a movie too where you find out that they um, we've talked about this before and I think there was an article on Slashmo about it, but how they built like 120 sets for this movie, which is insane. Yeah, if you're shooting that, that's like shooting a set a day. I mean, it's not necessarily shooting a set a day, but that's. You know, on average, uh, which is insane. Um, you know, there's a lot more uh, stuff on this uh, on this home video release. I keep on wanting to say Blu-ray release, but I don't have the Blu-ray. Um, uh, there's de- uh, uh, deleted scenes. There's like a lot of deleted scenes. There's like um, 14 deleted scenes. Yeah, I almost want to say it's like 30, 40 minutes or something worth of deleted scenes, uh, including uh, the de- the deleted scene with the caretakers, the last chow- uh, last lesson that which we we've talked about before. Uh, uh, I watched them all. Uh, you half of them, you can totally understand why they're gone. Half of them, I wish they were in the movie. There is an extended chase sequence in um, Kinto Bite, which uh, you know is my least favorite segment of that movie, but I almost wish this extended chase sequences in there because as you saw in the documentary, I know you haven't seen this deleted scene, uh, Brad, but uh, as you saw in the documentary, they, they just had so many creature effects, so many costumes in Canto Bite, and we see like almost none of them in the movie com- compared to how many were created. And in this um, chase sequence, we, you definitely get a much bigger scope of all that. Um, and I, I kind of wish that was in there. Um, the, the only other... Uh, special feature I wanted to talk about that I I saw, which I know you haven't seen yet, is they have a uh, they have the video footage of Andy Serkis on set uh, playing Snoke because he played it with uh, performance capture, and they basically present the entire scenes that he is in uh, with him on set, uh, you know, performing the character. In watching these segments, it almost makes me wish that. J.J. Abrams had cast Andy Serkis as a as maybe not a human character, but not as a CG creation that he could have been augmented with, you know, uh, physical makeup and stuff like that. Because watching him, you know, yell at Ray and he has like these tears coming down his like eyes and this just like I it's almost more powerful than watching you know, the creation, which is very good in the movie of Snoke. Uh, I think watching Andy Serkis is almost more powerful than watching that CG creation of Snoke. So I almost wish uh, we could have got the alternate uh, alternate universe version where Andy Serkis was playing Andy Serkis in the movie. Um, but uh, have you checked out any of the other special features? Uh, no, that's pretty much it. I, I've started listening to the commentary because 
Uh, we've we've got a, a little thing about the stuff, the most interesting stuff we learned from the commentary that I'm putting together uh, to go up sometime before the end of this week. Um, so keep an eye out for that. But um, how is that? Uh, I, I'm not too far into it, but it's um, it's it's definitely interesting. Like Ryan, you know, it's it's all Ryan Johnson talking about, you know, uh, different things that maybe they had planned at some point, and talking about you know the the vibe on set and, and what's happening. Uh, right from the beginning, um, he talks about how there was almost an alternate opening shot for the movie. Oh yeah, um, yeah th- that's on the deleted scenes. Actually, it's with uh, Finn ra- waking up. Yeah. So initially, uh, what they were going to do was pa- pan down from the opening crawl, and it was going to be the the medical um, pod helmet that that Finn was wearing, but it was going to make it look like it was a planet, because since normally the opening crawls usually pan down to a planet of some sort. And so you were going to think that it was a planet, but then it was slowly going to reveal that it was actually that helmet. But Brian Johnson said that it was it was a little too slow of a start, and it took them too long to really like kind of get the movie cracking, and like he really needed to like get the movie moving at a faster pace from the get go. Yeah, the other thing I took a peek at was I we talked about yesterday on the podcast. If if you get this movie on iTunes, Amazon, any of the services that you have linked to your Movies Anywhere account, which, by the way, if you haven't done that, you should do that just because it would be stupid not to. Uh, If you go into your Movies Anywhere app, which I have on my Apple TV, uh, you get a bonus special feature, which is watching the entire film just with John Williams' score, with no sound effects, no dialogue. And I, I watched the throne room sequence just with John Williams' score, and it's... It's it's kind of amazing. Like I, I feel like um, you weren't on the podcast yesterday, uh, Brad, but uh, Ben was talking about how you watch uh, movies in the background while you're while you're working, and how he yeah. couldn't do that. And he was like, and he suggested like, you know, this is probably a way he could watch movies in the background if it, if they had more mo- just movie scores. And I I could totally I I, I also have the problem of I can't watch a movie because I would get sucked into it. But um, with the score, like it's it's basically just like listening to a movie score, but having visuals to go along with it. Um, it it's amazing how much you miss of the score. That's you know going on underneath you know the dialogue and the sound effects and every you know the the world creation that they do uh, in the movie. Um, so I'd, I'd recommend everybody check that out. Um, and uh, you said you're going to have a piece in the commentary tomorrow on the site. Yeah, it should be tomorrow or Thursday, depending on whenever you're, you know people are listening to this. But yeah, by it should be up sometime Thursday morning. I'm hoping to finish it up uh, tonight. Okay, before we go into our, our feature presentation. Brad, where can people find more of your work online? Always with the slash film.com. Also on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. And you can also check out my podcast, Go Flix Yourself, on iTunes. And uh, We've got a, an episode coming up where we're going to take the time to recast Justice League just for the hell of it. <laughs> oh, and, uh, you know, if we didn't make this abundantly clear, I think um, you need to see this documentary. And you need to see these special features. Uh, yeah. I, I honestly would have paid $20 just to watch this documentary alone and not had the movie. Like, that's how good it is. Go check it out. It is on uh, all the digital uh, purchase services and not rental services. What would you call them? Digital uh, <laughs> digital download services? Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. And if you haven't actually done it yet, download movies anywhere because it's just, it's just good to have because it links – all of the digital movies you have across uh, Vudu, Amazon, iTunes, um, Amazon Prime, 
and Fandango now just recently joined. So it's just a great way to bring together almost all of the digital movies you have. There's a couple movie studios that haven't agreed to be part of the movies anywhere crossover, and that's Paramount and Lionsgate. But otherwise, all the movies from Sony, Warner Brothers, Disney, all that, they are all you can all have them all combined in your movies anywhere app and watch them digitally and not just in your movies anywhere app i'm not sure if you know this brad but if you buy something on amazon yeah it crosses over it, to itunes yeah. and vice versa so everything's unlocked everywhere it, there's no reason not to do it uh but yes joining me for the segment is slash film senior writer ben pearson hey what's up and writer why trend buoy hey everyone Okay, so the Academy Awards was, what, last week now? It seems like it was a month ago. Uh, (laughs) And uh, Frances McDormand made this big speech about how everybody should be adopting this inclusion rider. Ben, you wrote this article for the site uh, last week talking about that, and you've talked about it briefly here. But uh, could you give us the, the rundown of what is an inclusion rider? Sure. Yeah, it's it's basically like a contractual stipulation that essentially demands racial and gender diversity for at least 50 percent of a project's cast and crew. So this was an important thing that Frances McDormand did because she's been working in the industry for 35 years. And she said that she only just now found out about this. So by speaking out at the Oscars, you know, such a big platform to all of these power players in the industry and letting them know that this is a thing that exists, exists and is a, a weapon that they can have at their disposal um i I was talking about how uh, it could actually result in some measurable significant changes to hollywood and we're actually seeing that already so there are a couple different uh, production companies that have already adopted inclusion writers uh, or made the announcements rather that they're going to be adopting inclusion writers on uh, projects moving forward so Uh, Michael B. Jordan has a production company called Outlier Society, and he was one of the first to announce that he's going to be implementing these inclusion writers. Uh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon's Pearl Street Films production company also made a similar announcement a few days later. And then uh, Paul Feig, the director of Bridesmaids and Ghostbusters, has also um, committed his, um, I think it's called Feig Co. Entertainment, his production company, um, to be adopting them as well. So uh, we're already seeing pretty significant portions of the industry and, and big, big names um, taking McDormand's message to heart, which is great news. Okay. Um, I'll be the, uh, I will admit, uh, you know, when I was in high school um, and I heard the idea of uh, affirmative action, I, uh, uh, at first I was like, that's kind of bullshit. I was like, you know, the, the person who's best for the job should get the job. Um, it shouldn't matter, you know, the color of the, sea, uh, color of the skin, the, the sex of the person. Of course, I'm saying this as a young white male who doesn't know any better. <laughs> uh, I, I've since kind of, uh, you know, gone through, what, uh, almost 20 years of my life and uh, realized that that doesn't happen. You know, the best person for the job doesn't get the job. You know, it's usually the white male that gets the job. Um, But uh, do you think – well, there's – actually, let's jump into this because Netflix uh, has come out and said that they will not adopt inclusion writers uh, for their projects. Uh, Ben, you you talked about that in your, your article as well, right? 
Yeah, so uh, Reed Hastings, who's the CEO of Netflix, was asked if they had any interest in adopting inclusion writers for the shows or the films that they're producing. And he said to USA Today, quote, we're not so big on doing everything through agreements. We're trying to do things creatively. And um, USA Today said that Hastings would rather have his staff speak with the filmmakers about how many women and people of color are working on the project before shooting begins. So, uh, you know, that's one of those things that on the surface of it is really easy to um, jump to outrage and and be upset yeah. by this but sort it, of it, is he is he wrong or is he right in that statement well obviously each company has their prerogative right it's not a um it's not a requirement going forward that all companies adopt this thing it's just sort of like a best practices thing that like would be good to move hollywood through some of the barriers and break some of the, break down some of those barriers that have been in place you know since the industry has existed um it really and going back really quickly to your your um like diversity higher affirmative action kind of um uh illusion there, Peter, earlier. I should point out, because a lot of people, I've seen a lot of people bring this up in terms of inclusion writers, because they think that these quote-unquote diversity hires are going to negatively impact a show or a movie's storyline, but uh, well, there's that, an excerpt... That's just racist. <laughs> well, just in terms of like um, forcing creative people to alter the story in order to include um, you know, X percentage of people in front of the camera. And, but I, I should say that there's a, um, the Hollywood reporter wrote in 2014 about, uh, inclusion writers. And really they were like one of the first big uh, publications to actually put this forth into the world. And there's a, an excerpt from their article that says the clause would state that tertiary speaking characters should match the gender distribution of the setting for the film, as long as it's sensible for the plot. And I think that's a lot of things, uh, a lot of times what falls to the wayside in those arguments that people have is that, you know, it's not trying to force these decisions onto creators and, and make them physically alter the stories that they're trying to tell. It's just dropping it in there when it makes sense for what's going on in order to better reflect the actual world that we live in, in terms of racial and, and gender demographics. So um, getting back to Netflix, it's, it's a matter of like, should they be using inclusion writers or should they not? And, you know, in an ideal world, maybe, sure, yeah, across the board, it would be great if everybody adopted these. But I'm sort of, I feel like that's not entirely a realistic thing to want. And I think looking at Netflix in particular, they have a pretty good track record in terms of representation. They have made movies and shows with supremely racially diverse casts. Marco Polo, Sense8, uh, Narcos, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Sort of Destiny, Okja, The Cloverfield Paradox, things that have been um, projects that have been led by women like Orange is the New Black, uh, I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, Gerald's Game, The Incredible Jessica James. I mean, they, they have a lot. And because it's partially because Netflix produces such a vast amount of content. But still, the, you know, in terms of just by the sheer numbers of it, Netflix looks pretty good in terms of, um, you know, what they've done for people uh, of color and and women in in front of the camera um they do have some issues behind the camera but still i, I think that um i don't know peter do you have any thoughts on this well, do you want well, to i want to hear the only non-white male <laughs> uh, person who is on this show's opinion of this because uh I, I think they probably have uh something more to say than i think we probably can offer uh so hg what what are your thoughts on this well, like both of you, the first time I heard about an inclusion writer was uh, at Frances McDormand's speech at the Academy Awards, and I thought it was a great idea. I mean, I think that there is 
a huge uh, disparity for uh, people of color and between people of color and, and white men working in Hollywood. And the reason that we have a lot of problems with diversity on screen is because there isn't enough diversity behind this behind the camera. And I think inclusion writers are a good first step. I kind of agree with Ben in that I don't think that they have to be mandatory, but for now, I think it's a really good show of goodwill uh, and for a step in the right direction for this industry, which is kind of at this sort of tipping point in terms of representation and how they deal with issues of harassment and uh, sexual misconduct. So inclusion writers are a really interesting uh, concept, I think, and a really, I think, a good thing to include in contractual obligations because it allows people with greater power to sort of leverage that um, that influence they have to bring people up who don't have the opportunity that like the straight white male has in Hollywood. Like you're kind of saying it uh, earlier about affirmative action, Peter, and how it seems like that on paper that is a mistake because everyone should just be picked by the quality of their work and not just by their skin color. But that's not the case because a lot of the times people of color and minorities don't have the same opportunities. They may have that same level exactly. of creativity and uh, talent, but they are come from either low-income areas or that they have to work much harder to get the same opportunities as white people. So I think that the inclusion writer is in the way of affirmative action and a really good step for people uh, of color and uh, who don't really get to see those opportunities usually in Hollywood. So I'm all about inclusion writers. I don't see... Um, any negatives for now? I mean, like it, they're really new to me. So I don't really know much about them, but but is uh is Netflix wrong in in saying that they mm. they, they refuse to adopt it because it will hurt their creative? Yeah, business? it's it's not good PR on their part. Um, and I will say that there was that news that came out recently that uh, Claire Foy, who was the star of The Crown, was paid less than her co-star Matt Smith, and I think that inclusion writer is a good way of not only making sure that there's more diversity in front and uh, behind the camera, it's a way of making sure that there's less of disparity uh, all all across the board. So maybe it would benefit them to, in, to have an inclusion writers in their contracts. Um, but I mean, like, there's no way to sort of force them to do it. I think it probably would be a good idea in general. Um, yeah, it's I it's bad optics on their part to yeah. just to uh, refuse it altogether. Yeah, it's just such a weird statement because Netflix is so um, creator driven. You know, they're acquiring mm -hmm. all this talent that is the, the 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 you know the directors, the filmmakers, the showrunners that are making their content. And I feel like someone like the CEO of Netflix, they're you know. If you look at their vision as a company, I think that the better statement would have been like, as a company, no, we're not going to adopt inclusion writers because we don't think, you know, that it could hamper the creative vision. But we are in service of our creators. And if they want to adopt the inclusion writers, we support them 100 percent. Like, I feel like that would be what Netflix should have said. Um, and I, I do agree with Ben that Netflix, uh, over other, you know, c creators out there are, are very diversified. Um, so maybe it's not, um, as big of a deal. It just seems like such a bad way to say it. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think, I think ultimately the statement that he made was that because, you know, he would rather have his staff talk with the filmmakers directly about this, um, rather than like adopting an across the board thing. I think that. 
that is the sentiment that he's trying to get at Peter. He just yeah. didn't say it in say a way, that, way that, yeah. Uh, yeah, that that would have um, yeah been a little bit better from an optics perspective. I wonder if he's um, concerned that adopting inclusion writers across the board would scare away some creators because Netflix seems to be of the mind that they want as many creators as possible. And it's just kind of it's this big collection of um creators and showrunners <laughs> and producers. Uh, I wonder if they don't want to sort of leave out any creators who would be against inclusion writers. I don't know. That's sort of speculation on my part. But yeah, um, well, we'll have to see how uh, if this changes at all and um, how Hollywood is going to change as, you know, more of these production companies start to adopt these inclusion writers. And uh, it will be interesting to see. Um, you know, it's uh, – um, it's our world is so much of a reflection of what we see on these screens, either on our TV, on our iPhone, on our big screen. Um, and you know, th- things people say on, 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 on those programs and movies are adopted into our life, like nothing and seeing, you know, uh, casts and, uh, a, uh, crew that is as diversified as our real life. I think is something important for us to see. And uh, I think I think we're slowly getting there. You know, <laughs> we're slowly moving in that direction. I think most of Hollywood is is kind of liberal in that way. And I think um, hopefully that has a good effect on, the, you know, the world that uh, adopts this pop culture into their lives. Um, but I think uh, this draws this episode of Slash Film Daily to a close. Ben, where can people find more of your work online? You can find me at SlashFilm.com, and you can track me down on Twitter at Ben Pears. HT, where can people find more of your work online? You can find me on SlashFilm.com every day, and I'm on Twitter at HTranBooey. You can find this article and every article we mentioned on this podcast on SlashFilm.com. This podcast, SlashFilm Daily, is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Please go rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Spread the word. Tell your friends, and we'll see you tomorrow.